Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it gonna, like that's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results. Made just for us. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip to the professional-grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girlbomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb. Available at Walgreens. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. On Labor Day weekend, 1994, Rhoda Nathan flew into Cincinnati for a bar mitzvah. She shared a room at the Embassy Suites in the nearby suburb of Blue Ash with two friends. On the morning of Saturday, September 3rd, her friends went down to the complimentary breakfast, leaving Rhoda behind to shower. They returned less than an hour later to a bloody scene. After life-saving measures had failed, an autopsy revealed blood force trauma to Rhoda Nathan's head and torso, as well as that two teeth were missing. Also missing, $500 and some jewelry, allegedly including a pendant that Rhoda always wore. There was no sign of forced entry, so the police narrowed their search to hotel employees, eventually discovering one staffer named Elwood Jones, who had injured his hand that day. Further investigation revealed his access to a master key, as well as various objects that could have been responsible for Rhoda Nathan's injuries, including a walkie-talkie and a door chain found in his car. During the following week, Elwood's injured hand became infected. His treating physician noted a bacteria in the wound that is commonly found in human mouths. The state argued that Elwood Jones infected himself when knocking out Rhoda Nathan's teeth, which sounded scientific enough to the jury. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction, where we're covering yet another story of an innocent man who had been sentenced to death in Ohio. This time, it's out of Hamilton County, which encompasses Cincinnati. And when it comes to wrongful convictions in Ohio, Hamilton is second only to Cuyahoga County. And this time, it's believed that the prosecutors at trial, Mark Pete Meyer and Seth Teeger, names you're going to become familiar with, well, it appears that they knew that Elwood Jones was innocent but sent him to death row anyway. Elwood, I'm so sorry about where you've been and what you've been through, but I'm happy and honored to have you here today. Thank you. You're very welcome. And joining him are two of his attorneys, David Hine, first of all, welcome. Thank you, glad to be here. And of course, Jay Clark. Thanks, Jason, I'm glad to be here as well. So let's start right from the beginning, Elwood. As I mentioned, this is a Cincinnati story through and through, and you grew up there, right? I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. I grew up downtown in uh, West End. I went to Catholic school. My parents now moved to the suburbs in the later years. And what was Cincinnati like back then? You talking about in the 60s? It wasn't nothing spectacular about it. Uh, If you're talking about the criminal justice system, it's just as worse as it is now. Yeah, I believe you. There was a study that Hamilton County by zip code has more people on death row than anywhere else in the country. Wow. I think that in Cuyahoga County, they had the same problem as they have one or two or three prosecutors who think the rules don't apply and they shouldn't apply. There's probably a handful of three or four assistant prosecutors whose names keep coming up constantly in cases that have been reversed. I mean, 
if you think about it, the rules kind of don't apply to any prosecutor. Their immunity from accountability leaves them free to chase the tough on crime image. And with this anything goes mentality, we too often see a trail of wrongful convictions in their wake. And clearly Cincinnati was, and sad to say, still is no exception. It's a very conservative city. And I understand that. I get that. And I believe in law and order. That I do. Even though I was on the other side of the track when I became adult. A couple of times I was arrested. What was that for? It was theft and burglary. That was it. All right. So your record wasn't exactly clean, but no violent crimes. And I understand that by now you had paid your debt to society and had a job working at a hotel, a steady job at the embassy suites in a Cincinnati suburb called Blue Ash. And you were in your early 40s by this time, married. So things were stabilized. And what was your wife's name? Yvonne. I had a friend on the side, and I think that was another piece of the poison tree that they used that I was having an affair. Her name was Earlene Metcalf. Not met her in 94. Earlene was one of Elwood's co-workers at the Embassy Suites in Blue Ash, and obviously, I think most people would agree that although theft and infidelity are usually not items on the top of anyone's resume, they just don't merit a death sentence. These things are also not indicative of someone being the type of person to bludgeon another human being to death. In this case, a 67-year-old hotel guest named Rhoda Nathan. She had come into Blue Ash from New Jersey on Friday September 2nd, 1994, the day before she died. Rhoda Nathan came in for her best friend's grandson's bar mitzvah. So she was traveling with a friend, Elaine Shubb, and her friend's boyfriend, Joe Kaplan. The three of them were staying in the hotel together. And part of the state's narrative here is that Rhoda Nathan's friend and her boyfriend were coming from Florida and had checked in earlier in the day just as two people. Rhoda Nathan was traveling in from New Jersey. She had a different flight. She got there later. And the state's position was whoever was watching the room thought that there were only two people in the room and there were actually three people staying there. And then the next morning, Rhoda's traveling companions got up and went down for breakfast. Rhoda stayed behind to shower. So the story goes, whoever was watching this room entered the room expecting the room to be empty so that they could take whatever they wanted, and were surprised to find Rhoda Nathan in the room. You know, when I was reading about this, I thought, if the goal was to steal, then why not just pretend to be housekeeping and leave, <laughs> yeah. you know, without right. murdering someone? I right. mean, at first glance, there's already a hole in the story you could drive a truck through, but okay, so I want to hear from Elwood. Elwood, tell me about that morning. So when I came in that morning at 4.30 and I brought Earlene to work, we clocked in, I think it was about quarter to five. I usually come in early in the morning to help in the comp breakfast, and then I would go to the banquet department and finish my day out. On that particular day, one of Elwood's co-workers had called out sick, so he had to pull double duty, floating between complimentary breakfast and the banquet department. So after setting up comp breakfast, he went up to the banquet halls, which were not in the best shape. They was trashed, so I had to clean them out and come downstairs. I think it was around 6, and going to the dumpster. I tripped going up the steps to the dumpster. There's a metal stairs going up there. I smashed my hand, come on back into the kitchen, uh, clean my hand, put a Band-Aid on it, and went on back to work. I think it was around uh, 8 or something after that. The scream was upstairs. I was in comp breakfast. Everybody started going upstairs to see what happened. And the scream, you know, presumably came from Elaine Shubb, who first came upon this literal horror scene. Rhoda Nathan was naked, covered in blood, and the area around her was, you know, a bloody mess. So whoever attacked her would logically and certainly have been covered in blood. Within minutes of this vicious attack, Elwood was standing in the restaurant, completely composed in the clothes that he was in, not disheveled in any way, not covered in blood. Whoever did this had to have been covered in blood themselves. Right, Jay. And at this point, no one knew what happened. They were just trying to save Rhoda, who had blood pouring from her mouth. 
I think the initial thought was that she had had a medical emergency, probably a heart attack or something along that line. The guest at the hotel, who was also a nurse, they were trying to render first aid. She was still breathing and she still had a pulse, but she was struggling. Like she was, I think, effectively choking on the, on the blood. So one of the issues here is that they kept taking towels and trying to mop the blood out of her throat and out of her mouth to kind of clear the airway. All of those towels used to help clean up the room that would have had DNA on it were thrown out. When Blue Ash Fire Department arrived, I think they tried to intubate her. And that gets to another issue about teeth maybe being dislodged or, or broken out. Later on, the state speculated that Rhoda Nathan's broken teeth were responsible for the injury and the infection on Elwood's hand. But back to the immediate aftermath, at this point, the room was not yet being treated as a crime scene. Evidence was being contaminated or destroyed, and new injuries were potentially being created by first responders and medical personnel that added to the overall picture at the autopsy. She was pronounced dead at Bethesda North Hospital and then was taken to the Hamilton County Coroner's Office. What they reported in the autopsy was that there was blunt force trauma, and I think they said that there were blows to the torso, the face, and the jaw. She also tested positive for hepatitis B, right? She was actively infected with it. Although we cannot be 100% sure, this suggests that she was infected with hepatitis B prior to the attack, and that became pretty important later on. However, as soon as her death was ruled a homicide, Room 237 was then considered a crime scene where they discovered that about $500 was missing along with some jewelry, allegedly including a pendant necklace that Rhoda's traveling companion, Elaine Shubb, said that Rhoda had always worn. I I know you guys had said that the bloody towels had been tossed, right? So was there any other probative physical evidence at all? So there, there were fingernail scrapings, some hairs, things of that nature. There was blood all over the room. So they scraped it from all over the place, the television, the bed, the table, the carpets, the walls, the doors, et cetera. And there should have been direct evidence of whoever was involved in this crime because you were going in there immediately after. The killer's DNA should have at least been under her fingernails. None of it was a match for Elwood. But before any of that was even tested, they started talking to staff and hotel guests. And they were leaning towards a staffer since there was no sign of forced entry. Oh, you know how sometimes they they focus on a guy just because they have a prior record? You think that's why they focused on you? I I really can't say because it was at least 37 other employees with criminal records and some of them worse than mine from the general manager on down. Wow. So there was 37. All right. Well, listen, you know, more power to the hotel for giving guys a second chance. And women too, right? So when did you go in for your interview? I think around uh, 11, I went up to be interviewed. It was Sergeant Lilly, John Ladd, and I'm pretty sure it was Stokes in there at that time. And they asked me what happened. I wrote my statement, and that was it. So you were free to go, but eventually they came back to you, seized and searched your car, found or allegedly found items in your toolbox that they thought were incriminating. But that didn't happen that Saturday or even the next day. Well, on the Sunday, I went to Lublin and I was at Earlene's house and I had a guy named Jimmy flush my radiator out. He was the last person to use my toolbox. Right. And what Jimmy saw or didn't see became very important later on in your case. And we'll get to that in a minute. So, Dave, what made them focus on Elwood? What ultimately got the police and the state to start looking at Elwood was that he had, as he mentioned earlier, cut his hand that day on the dumpster. And then later when he kind of jammed it in the door and a couple of days later went to the hospital because it had gotten quite infected. Since the victim had been beaten to death, one could expect that the assailant's hand might have been injured. And Elwood's infection and hospitalization drew unwanted attention to his coincidental hand injury. So police spoke to his treating physician, a Dr. McDonough, and although this was a strep A infection, there was another bacteria present in the wound called Iconella, which is commonly found in human mouths. This spawned a theory that the infection came from Rhoda Nathan's teeth. However, according to Elwood, he had licked his own wound soon after his work-related injury had occurred. Elwood sought testing for Iconella to prove his claim, but was told that his heavy course of antibiotics would have already cleared up any Iconella in his own mouth. Further police interviews with hotel staff 
only served to corroborate Elwood's alibi. However, only Erlene Metcalf could give a solid time and place for Elwood. At around 7.30, the believed time of the murder, the pair had gone on break together. It appears the police found this alibi too convenient and brought him in again for questioning on September 12th. When they questioned me on the 12th, they didn't like my attitude when uh, I told them that you asked me what I did that day and I told you. And they said, well, uh, you had a master key. And I explained to them, I say, every key in the hotel is a master key. I say, guests don't know they master keys. Wait, so every key was the same for every room? Yes. The craziest thing. But I mean, they, it, they, they just didn't tell no one. That's nuts. I thought it was crazy when I first found out about it. It's kind of funny to think about now, 30 <laughs> years later, but they were all still metal right. keys. For them to cut new keys when a, a guest would leave with the key or something like that, they just didn't bother. They Everything matched. Well, I'm, I'm certainly glad it's not the 90s anymore. I mean, I can't get over that. So they already thought that you were their guy. So this probably looked to them like you were trying to deflect attention from yourself. Now, they also brought in your wife, Yvonne, on the 12th as well. Yeah. On the way to the police station, they told her, say, well, by the way, you know your husband was having an affair. She said, well, I knew he wasn't coming home on time. She said, but all men are dogs in a sense. And that just shut that up. She one told me exactly what she told the police. And that was the end of that conversation. That's a pretty understanding person that you were married to. But huh? she said, we'll talk about that later. we just get through this. She stuck with me. So they were probably telling her that to get her to turn on you, right? It's not You don't need to be Columbo to figure this out. But Yvonne didn't bite. So they seized your car and initially just found a door chain that they later tried to say was some sort of a weapon. Right. And we'll get to that in a bit. But then... If I'm understanding this correctly, a day or so later, a Blue Ash police officer named Michael Bray claimed to have found Ms. Nathan's pendant in your car. Am I getting this correct? Can I take this? Because this is a part that <laughs> – this is something I, I'm really like – this bugs me. I want to, Dave. I want to talk about yeah. it. Yeah. So, so the story with the pendant. So the police went to pawn shops and ostensibly couldn't find this piece of jewelry anywhere. Then they took his car. They impounded it on the 12th. They then had it in their possession for 48 hours before they took it to the coroner's office. And multiple people searched the car for hours and didn't find anything. And then after that, one, one officer decides, well, I'm going to go back and search again, I guess, or, or search the one spot that you would think they would want to look for evidence, which would be the trunk, the space where someone might store something. And, and if Officer Bray is to be believed, they never looked in the trunk before. I don't know. But when this guy is all by himself, with no one to corroborate it, he says that he went into the trunk of the car, opened the toolbox, and there it was, just sitting there. Now, did he take a picture of it in the car? No. Did he take a picture of the trunk open with the toolbox in it? No. He took a picture of the pendant in his hand with the car in the background, and then told people, look what I found in the car. This podcast is brought to you by Ohio Justice and Policy Center, a nonprofit law firm that seeks justice for people directly impacted by Ohio's criminal legal system. OJPC provides free legal services to currently and formerly incarcerated people. Through its Beyond Guilt project, OJPC works to free overpunished people who have rehabilitated themselves. OJPC's second chance clinics help individuals with criminal records remove barriers to employment and housing. OJPC's Human Rights in Prison Project represents people who face denial of medical care. In its 25-year history, OJPC has worked at the policy level and won numerous victories in Ohio, including ending juvenile life without parole and exempting seriously mentally ill people from the death penalty. To learn more about Ohio Justice and Policy Center and how you can support its mission, visit ohiojpc.org. That's O-H-I-O-J-P-C.org. Ohio Justice and Policy Center. We don't write people off. Another officer flies up to New Jersey or New York with the pendant. 
to meet with Rhoda Nathan's family. And all of this is withheld from Elwood at the original trial. But the family looks at it and goes, yeah, that's not it. And then they tell the police officers, look, this pendant, though, it's a really unique piece of jewelry. It was made from some family rings, some heirlooms. And then they talk to another family member who we just refer to as Uncle Ira, who was Rhoda's brother-in-law. And he goes, no, that's not correct. I have those family rings. This was just bought in a jewelry store in Brooklyn. So there's evidence that potentially this isn't even the right pendant. There's evidence that it definitely wasn't the unique piece of jewelry that the state says that it was. And there are very, very serious questions about whether this thing was ever actually found in the car at all. None of that was shared. None of that was provided. So their big smoking gun turned out to be total horseshit, and they knew it. I mean, this has to be why they didn't arrest you for over a year. Now, there was a one other item that we mentioned in your car, the door chain. What's the story with that? It was a door chain inside of my toolbox. And it's not no type of door chain used in the hotel. The hotel used a bar chain. And the first thing I asked, what did I do? Go out to my car, get a tool chain. I need something to whoop this woman with. I say, doesn't it have some type of blood or forensics or something on it? I said, come on with it. Stop it. So this freaking door chain wasn't even the type that would have been available to, in the room if, if somebody even wanted to use that as a weapon, which in itself is ridiculous. This was just some random ass door chain in your car. The whole theory is fucking ridiculous. And that's not even the worst one. One of their theories is they say that whoever it was beat this woman to death, not just with their hands and the chain, but then a walkie-talkie, and then hit them with multiple objects. In fact, the police officers for months were trying to send images to the FBI to get them to confirm, like, hey, this looks like it could be Elwood's shoe, right? And they, they would come back and be like, no, no, this is not consistent with Elwood's shoe at all. In fact, it looks like it could be X and it was something that might implicate somebody else. And they'd be like, mm, let's try again. How about the walkie talkie? And they finally got them to say something to the effect of the bruising is potentially consistent with something of that shape. So like a square or a rectangle, but that's as close as, as they would get. And with that, the state then completely distorted it into, aha, a bruise and an item that's so significantly tied together that it's essentially a fingerprint, which is just a lie. I mean, a walkie-talkie. How many other hotel staffers probably had one? I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, we have several departments. Everybody have a walkie-talkie. But that morning, the police was given information of two people leaving Miss Nathan's room, one going left, one going right, with a walkie-talkie in his hand. And to the day, I feel that's where they got that theory of a walkie-talkie. They never went back to try to find out who these two people was or where that walkie-talkie is to the day. This is just one of many more compelling leads that were flatly ignored by Blue Ash PD and the Hamilton County Prosecutor's Office. And we'll reveal more of those leads later when we talk about the discovery that happened in post-conviction. It's mind-boggling. So instead, they focused on Elwood Jones, who had access to a walkie-talkie and a master key. But as we find out, so did everyone else. He had a criminal record. So did almost everyone else. And this theory was supported by the presence of a bacteria in his injured hand, commonly found in human mouths, Iconella. And then the pendant, which appears to have been planted, as well as not even being the right freaking pendant. This is what they went to a capital trial with. And it appears that even they believed so little in this theory that they waited for over a year to arrest Mr. Elwood Jones. That day when I was arrested, the two blue-ass officers... Stokes and Lily, they put me in the car to take me to District 1 police station to take me in the back. And at that time, they show me this picture and say, this is what we found in your car. And I looked and I told them, I don't know where that pendant come from. If you found it in there, you put it in there. At that time, Stokes get up and go outside the door and talk on the phone. And he said he didn't bite. I don't know what he meant by that. Who he was talking to on the phone, he said he didn't bite. And next I know, they was taking me on to the Justice Center. They booked me in. He didn't bite. 
Wow. I mean, it seems like they thought their lie would make you cave and confess. And it might have worked on a man who was actually guilty, but it still wasn't you. And even with Jimmy, your mechanic, corroborated that this pendant was not in the damn toolbox, along with so much Brady material that we're going to get to in a bit. The prosecutors, Mark Peepmeyer and Seth Teeger, still went ahead to trial, seeking the death penalty, by the way, on this bullshit evidence, in November of 96, in front of Judge Ralph Winkler. And the case was purely circumstantial evidence. So they say... But that's okay because circumstantial evidence is even better than direct evidence. Which, which, no, it is obviously not. A third grader can tell you that. But anyway, they presented their theory that Elwood allegedly waited for Elaine Shubb and Joe Kaplan to leave room 237 before entering, being discovered by Rhoda Nathan, punching her teeth out and fatally beating her to death, and finally stealing $500 as well as jewelry, including this alleged signature pendant. So what did they present to support this theory? They told the jury that Elwood was in the hotel that day, that he was on the second floor, that he had a master key, and that they purportedly found this pendant in his car, and that he had an infection in his hand. And the narrative that the state presented was that it was an Iconella Corridon's infection. And in fact, that's not what it was. There happened to be Iconella in the cut. Right. It was a strep A infection. And this doctor, Dr. McDonough, who was a hand surgeon with no expertise at all in microbiology or in infectious diseases, opined that the only way that Elwood could have gotten this was by punching somebody in the mouth, which is just objectively false. But that's where the broken teeth come into it. They also tried to draw connections between Miss Nathan's injuries and objects that might have been available to Elwood, but really they were available to any hotel employee and there were dozens and dozens of them. Their absolute junk forensics suggests that they were able to match up one of the bruises with the bottom of a walkie-talkie and the scratches, the particular scratches on the bottom of the walkie-talkie can be found on the, in the bruises. It's completely fabricated. They took pictures of Ms. Nathan's body during the autopsy and effectively skewed the pictures and, and, and admitted that they manipulated the pictures, they said, in order to match a scale. And they used items such as the walkie-talkie and made that the scale so that when they were distorting the picture, they distorted it to fit the size of the walkie-talkie. And what they were actually told after repeated attempts of submitting this evidence to the FBI and the FBI coming back and saying, no, these, this, this is not consistent with this bruising pattern at all. Finally, after manipulating the, the pictures, the FBI came back and said, this is theoretically consistent with something sort of of that shape. But they did not say, yes, we can match up the scratches on the bottom of this walkie-talkie so that it's like a fingerprint. They inexplicably then put four experts on the stand who would not corroborate their nonsensical weapons theory. But the state still had this random pendant that the jury was led to believe was the real McCoy, as well as Dr. McDonough's erroneous testimony about Iconella. Elwood, please tell me that your attorneys presented something, anything to combat McDonough. I mean, did they? The expert they hired, he couldn't testify in person because he had some other arrangements. So they did it by video. The way it played out is you don't have any way then, once the state's expert testifies, to call your doctor and say, hey, this is what he just said. What's your answer to that? So this whole video testimony was never going to work, let's face it. And this expert was paid for, by the way, which makes it even a little more insane. So did they do anything else? Julia Sanks was the leading attorney then. And he actually said something about my criminal record. And I, I still was lost to say, I didn't even take the stand. Why would you put that in there? Ineffective assistance of counsel doesn't even begin to cover this. So the Iconella evidence and the pendant, both total horseshit, were never successfully impeached. And then your own attorney brought up your criminal record, leaving it wide open for the prosecutors. The prosecutors say that I was the only employed with a criminal record. And at that time, I knew it was some criminals in there. I didn't know as many as I found out later when I got the documents. It's 37 people in there. 
I mean, that's not a misrepresentation that they gave to the jury. That's just a straight out lie, right? I mean, how could they? How could the jury have ever gotten it right when they're being led down this crazy path? During post conviction, a few affidavits was taken to the jury. They said they noticed that I had a criminal record. So what make them think that I didn't commit this crime? And they came back in there and they said guilty and recommended death. Judge Winkler's got ready to send us to me, asked me, did I have anything to say? And I say, I do. I say, yesterday, Your Honor, I say, even you in this courtroom offered me a manslaughter. I say, today, you want to kill me. I say, and you telling me this is a court? Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. My daily routine was get up in the morning at 4, take my shower. Well, I took a bath in my cell until they changed over and put showers on the range. And When you say I take a out, bath in your cell, what do you mean by that? I wash up in my sink. Right. That's a bird bath, right? <laughs> bird bath. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the best you could do. I got them washed up, and I say my little prayer, and I repair my day. At uh, 6 o'clock, I would come out. Can you describe the cells? Small cell, about 8 by 10. You've got a bed in there, a sink, a toilet. You can afford, you can have a TV, typewriter, and a radio. And that's about it. So you're pretty much living in a, in a closet. In or a, a cage. Yeah, yeah. It's a filthy cage. And of the men that you served time with in there, was there one who made a, you know, an impression on you that, that that helped you get through this incredible ordeal? Well, yes. He's off death row now, too. D'Ambrosio was best good friends of mine. We spoke with Joe on the show, Joe D'Ambrosio. What an <laughs> incredibly inspiring guy and what a horrible, horrible story. But he's come through it and 
he seems to be doing as well as he possibly could be doing under the circumstances. So, Joe, if you're listening, we're thinking about you and talking about you, too. So how did you find the strength? Because I'm sure there are other guys who just go crazy in that situation and lose their mind and end up killing themselves or doing, you know. I've seen several guys on death row commit suicide. I was right there in the same pod with them. Three guys, I know, killed themselves and others. But I think what the main thing would gain me script, I knew in my heart I did nothing wrong. I lost a sister. I lost my wife. I lost several friends. My mother passed, and my father and all and uncles. And the only thing that gives me hope and has gave me is to clear my name, and I could look up and tell my mother she can rest in peace. I understand Miss Nathan is dead, and I'm, I'm sorry. I feel sorry for her family. But I'm also a victim in this case, and I was determined that I spent day in and day out trying to prove my innocence. I wrote letters every day. I had one thing on my plate, is to get my life back. And now here you are. Yeah, and I still haven't got it fully back. That's all I want is my life back and give me what little I had. And I'm happy. And prosecuting them don't want to do the right thing. So tell us a bit about how you got here and what's still left, starting with your direct appeal. They raised, I think, was about, I want to say about 32 heirs. Some was ineffective system to counsel. We were denied that all through state court. It wasn't withholding evidence until we got into federal courts, Brady violation. And I think that was about 2005 when your case was moved to the federal public defenders. They filed for a discovery in in the federal courts and they granted me saying that the prosecutors, police department, and any agency who were involved in this case had to turn over their records. As I was going through it, I began to see things that I'd never seen or heard. In the original discovery, I don't remember the exact number of pages, like 286 pages, something like that. I think there's over 4,200 pages that they got in federal habeas and discovery. The questionnaires that were sent to all the hotel guests, and I think there were 16 or 17 of them that had, I'll say, good investigative leads. The first thing I came across was the statement of two hotel employees, Demetrius Williams and Norman Ryan told the police they witnessed two guys coming out of that room, a black guy and a white guy, one going left and one going right. The black guy, when he came out, he had a radio in his head. He was going left. They gave him a full description of what they had on, both of them. And they totally ignored it. There's nothing else in the files where the police did any follow-up, even the prosecutors. There were a ton of tidbits, we'll say, that they learned, whether it was from interviewing staff about keys or things like that, that they just never, ever followed up on. Obviously, the Anthony Lackey information. Anthony Lackey was off on the day that this happened, but a shuttle driver who drove employees to and from an employee parking lot remembered taking him back to his car that morning. And when he was interviewed by police, he denied being there. It was also reported that later that day, he and his girlfriend went out shopping and he was suddenly flush with cash, which is significant because reportedly stolen from the hotel rooms, $500 in cash that was never recovered. Oh, and Mr. Lackey also had an extensive criminal record. A violent record. As distinct with, with from assaultive behavior in there. Yeah. yeah. And this is what I meant earlier about more compelling leads. This discovery also revealed that Blue, the Blue Ash Police Department had gone to New York and New Jersey and spoken with the family about the pendant, which unraveled that lie as well. There was so much Brady material withheld here that it's hard to even keep track. But there are two more that are huge. The fact that Rhoda Nathan had hepatitis was not disclosed pre-trial. Elwood knew that they had taken blood for testing, but they didn't tell him what they were testing it for. And they didn't ever report back that he had a negative hepatitis B result where Rhoda Nathan had a positive result. And that's really important because, I mean, the reason EMTs wear rubber gloves is because the risk of infection from hepatitis B, because it is so infectious. So while he could have given himself like canella from licking his own injured hand, it's almost certain that Elwood would have tested positive for hepatitis B had he been the assailant. 
So the Blue Ash Police Department, Mark Peepmeyer, Seth Teeger, they all had scientific evidence clearing Elwood all the way back on September 15th, 1994, when it really counted. And here we are almost 30 years later, still trying to unravel this injustice. But wait, there's more. I know you're probably going, no, no more. I can't take it. I can't take it. But hang in there. They had another lead before trial from a woman named Dolores Suggs, which didn't come to light, probably because they kept it in the dark until decades later. Yes, that was in 2016. I had an email from Dolores Suggs' daughter, Tara, and she told me that her mother told her about she was in jail. And a woman named Linda Reed told her that her husband had killed this woman and framed a black man. Dolores Suggs is somebody who spent a a very short period of time in the Hamilton County Justice Center in 1995. And she was in there with Linda Reed, who confided to Dolores Suggs that Linda's husband, Earl, a white, red-haired man from Blue Ash, had confessed to killing somebody in the embassy suites in Blue Ash and framing a black man. And she asked Dolores to do something about it when she got out. And Dolores was told by the Blue Ash police, this is a closed case. And even though she was reporting an apparent confession, they just did nothing with it. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I read that Earl Reed was quite cozy with the Blue Ash police department. He reportedly would get up in the morning and have coffee with the Blue Ash police department. And there were a number of instances where I believe it's well documented. He, he abused Linda Reed. And there is a, a narrative that's part of the record here where severely beat her even after they were divorced or separated to the point that she was in a medical facility and he was not allowed to come and visit her anymore. Now, I want to be very clear. We don't know whether Earl did it. And I think that there are, as I said, a number of other people in the records that are equally or potentially more plausible than Earl. But there are other facts that do kind of make the suggestion that Earl was there. For example, Robin Budd was a witness who said that the morning of the murder, at basically the exact same time that the murder apparently took place, she saw a man who sort of meets Earl's description bolt from the hotel, run across the parking lot and into the woods in the same direction to where Earl Reed's house was like a half a mile away. But the real significance of of Earl Reed and the Dolores Suggs tip isn't so much that, aha, we've now found the killer. It's the Blue Ash Police Department and the Hamilton County Prosecutor's Office was so polluted by cognitive bias and confirmation bias and tunnel vision that they didn't even bother to look into this. Before Elwood had been convicted, they had him in custody and they just went, someone confessed to this? Whatever. We've got, we've got our man. And that's true throughout. There are hundreds of pages of records where people are identifying other potential suspects. Many of those records are from independent sources that fit together with each other and, and really kind of tell a narrative that is like, gosh, I think that is a person that it really could have been. And it's definitely not Elwood. And they conceded. They never looked at it. The Blue Ash Police Department never looked into any of it. All of this information, the bevy of alternative and more likely suspects, including Earl Reed, Anthony Lackey, these two mystery men, as well as the pendant not being the pendant, never mind it likely being a totally fabricated piece of evidence in the first place, and the irreconcilable hepatitis B test results. This was all information that they had at the time of trial. It was not shared with the defense. However, from a post-conviction litigation standpoint, the problem with these discoveries is that they happened over time and were never litigated as a whole. So the 2019 motion for a new trial was based solely on the alleged Earl Reed confession. But eventually, Judge Winkler's successor, Judge Etna Cooper, granted a hearing. Jay was already involved. And then came Dave Hine from Voorhees, one of the most widely respected law firms in the country. So Jay was at that point working with the federal public defenders. They filed the motion for a new trial. Judge Cooper said, yep, we're going to give you a hearing on it. And finally, all this Brady material would be heard altogether. Now, an election in 2020 brought in Judge Wendy Cross. And oddly enough, almost 30 years later, Elwood was facing Seth Teeger again. What stuck out the most about this hearing? Standing up in a courtroom and calling a prosecutor by name, Mark Pietmeyer, a liar, outright lying to put somebody on death row. 
that doesn't happen every day. No, it and doesn't. It, it really <laughs> got under Seth Teeger's skin. It really bothered him. And I'm kind of glad it did, but it was for the wrong reason. He didn't have the ability to defend his, his friend. And I think, to me, what was overall remarkable about it, the lack of any meaningful response from the prosecutor from a litigation standpoint, we put on Dr. Burdett to talk about the hepatitis. We were specifically told by the judge before the hearing started, we are not going to relitigate Iconella. Fine. The first question out of the prosecutor's mouth cross-examining Dr. Burdett was about Iconella. We were doing literally almost doing somersaults at the table when he opened the door because David prepared the witness and drove a truck through that <laughs> door after that. And they put on no meaningful rebuttal to anything that we put on. They didn't have anybody come in and say, hey, the Blue Ash investigation was fine. They didn't have anybody come in and say, oh, Dr. Burdett's wrong. Hepatitis B is not that infectious. They did nothing. And I think it's because of the mindset in Hamilton County has been for so long. We don't need to. The judge is going to give it to us. Judge Winkler was a former prosecutor. Judge Winkler's sons were both prosecutors. Now they're judges. Prosecutors in robes is the daily norm down here for us. They didn't put on anything to justify why he should not get a new trial. And so on December 20th, 2022, Elwood, you were finally granted a new trial. And amazingly, you got a bond set and were released on January 14th of 2023. I have been turned down so many times in the court that I was totally uh, lost for words that day. It's, it's the thing about death penalty cases. People just don't want to touch them or do the right thing. I was totally shocked, but I was so thankful. I got out. I did the two things I said I was going to do. I was going to kiss the ground, and I went to the cemetery to see my mother and tell her she rest in peace. So, and from that day, I st I'm still fighting. The state is kind of doing everything that they can at this point to, it seems like, ignore reality. They've filed a petition for writ of prohibition, multiple appeals. They've all been denied. It seems like they're doing everything they can to avoid having any kind of honest evaluation of the actual evidence. And they still want to litigate this and, and hold on to the conviction that they obtained in the 1990s with only a tiny sliver of the evidence. And I understand that if this does go to trial, you'll be facing Mark, Pete Meyer, and Seth Teeger again, potentially in February 2024. So despite the obvious and sane choice in front of them, this is not 100% over. Is there anything our audience can do to help? Mark, Pete Meyer refers to people who support Elwood as his groupies. Well, sign me up for that. Yeah, I'll wear that badge. I think awareness, let Hamlin County Prosecutor's Office know that it's being watched. And Melissa Powers is now the Hamilton County prosecutor. Maybe they can reach out to her by email, letter, call and leave a message and follow up and ask her what she's going to do to right this wrong. Maybe if she knows people are watching and people have an interest, that she can do the right thing and dismiss it. So we'll have action steps in the bio. And now that brings us to my favorite part of the show, closing arguments. It works like this. I'm going to thank each of you again for sharing this incredible, incredible story. and. Then I'm going to kick back in my chair, turn my microphone off, leave my headphones on, and just listen to anything else you have to say. So, Dave, why don't you go first, then Jay, and then Elwood take us off into the sunset. It's important that people understand that although Elwood has very graciously given Jay and I a lot of credit for this, there are a lot of people who have been involved over the years. There's an entire unit of people at the Federal Public Defender's Office, the Capital Habeas Unit from Aaron Barnhart, Bridget Kennedy, T.C. Chansky. I have two colleagues at Voris, Emily St. Cyr and Zach Hollinger. You've got Dolores Suggs and Tierra Suggs, the two experts, Dr. Burdett and Beth Moore. And you've got Judge Cross, who, I, you know, frankly, I think a different judge in this situation would have caved to the political pressure. You had the prosecutor going on local radio stations before a decision had been made calling her a, a crazy liberal judge, et cetera, et cetera, and trying to make this a political issue. And I think she sat there and just looked at the evidence and said, politics be damned, I need to make the decision that is just. And finally, to the prosecutors, I, I'm a little bit more cautiously optimistic that the new prosecutor will take a look at this. Please take a look at this. Let's let's have a conversation. Let's Let's talk about the evidence because 
there's absolutely no reason to be having a second trial. I won't repeat a lot of what Dave said because I agree with it. But I think the takeaway from this, I think you're going to find this as a common thread through the work that you do. You can guarantee that you will never commit a crime. You can in no way guarantee you won't be accused of committing a crime. And when you're accused and it's your day in the box, you want the system to work the way the system is supposed to work. You want people to follow the rules. You want police to do the investigation and prosecutors to do their job and disclose all the evidence. And right now in Hamilton County, honestly, in general terms, that doesn't happen. And so a lot of people can look at this particular case or any of the other cases that, that, that I know you, you've profiled and go, well, that would never happen to me. Don't count on it because you cannot guarantee you won't be accused someday. Urge people to get involved. Don't stay silent and speak up. I'm very thankful for everyone who took their time, including you, to help air this. And I'm hoping that I could have my little life back. And I would like to see the prosecutors be held accountable. Until they hold prosecutors accountable for what they do to taking a man's life, a woman's life, they gonna continue. That need to change if you're gonna bring change the system. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I want to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Lila Robinson, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today.